This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. On the show today, we had Ben Eltham from New Matilda come in to talk about federal politics. Then forest lawyer Dania Jacobs from Environmental Justice Australia joined me to talk about native forest logging in Victoria and the current concerns for threatened species. Then I had a chat with Dutch historian Rutger Bregman on his new book, Utopia for Realists. And finally, I spoke with Professor Tom Griffiths, a historian at the ANU. Tom wrote a book, The Art of Time Travel, which is published through Black Ink, and it won the Ernest Scott Prize for History. He's delivering a lecture about the craft of history in the age of fake news, and I spoke with Tom about this and his book. Uh, you are listening to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. And as I mentioned, we're now going to be talking to Ben Altham, who is the National Affairs Corresp- Correspondent for New Matilda. And uh, he's a, tro- a trooper today coming in when he's feeling not 100%. So thanks, Ben, for doing that. Morning, Amy. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm a little bit croaky, actually, <laughs> as I hear in the cans. Yeah, you have a bout of man flu. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. I'm going to just complain a lot. Yeah. And I'll not be that sick. Great. Excellent. Yep. Looking yep. forward to that. Thank you. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. Poor yep. Ben. Poor Ben. Okay. We got that out of the way. Yeah. Um, moving on. Moving on. So, Ben, uh, something's happening today and tomorrow. The High Court is, uh, is in session in Melbourne to consider two challenges to the Postal Survey. Uh, and this is all about whether... Uh, our finance minister Matthias Cormann is able to approve the $122 million cost of the postal survey uh, on the question of same-sex marriage without parliament's approval. Uh, What do you think will be happening and who is bringing about the challenge, Ben? Um, I believe the challenge has been mounted by uh, one of the community legal services, is that right? Yeah, and some of the crossbenchers. I believe yeah. it was Andrew Wilkie. Yeah, yeah. so um, it goes to the constitutionality, I suppose, of this plebiscite and whether it will be upheld by the High Court uh, as a legal instrument. Of course, we know that there's plenty of things wrong democratically with the ballot. It won't be representative and it employs uh, antiquated technology and um, it's, it's probably not going to be um, a genuine representation of, of the popular sentiment. Mm. Um, but those are not the issues that the High Court will really be sitting and deciding on. They're going to be looking at the black letter constitutional legalities of the matter. And that's uh, well outside my pay grade, Amy. But um, I'm th- shocked, Ben. <laughs> yeah, I'm no lawyer. Um, <laughs> but um, I think it is fair to say that... Um, there there could well be a situation where the the plebiscite is actually struck down. So Mm. it could be quite interesting for the government. It is. Um, There are many constitutional lawyers putting in their two cents uh, and most of them say they're not quite sure if the High Court will be bold enough and say, no, you don't have that uh, power. So it will be really interesting to see what they decide. And that hopefully will have some indication of what they're thinking uh, in the next couple of days, because it starts getting mailed out at this time next week. So really time is ticking. Yeah, I guess they have to make a decision quickly, which is unusual for (laughs) justices uh, of that august level. Um, Yes. But you know, look, this is why they take home the big bucks. Um, so we would hope that they do make a, a call and make it early. Look, I think 
probably it will go ahead, but mm-hmm. you know it's a bit of a flip of the coin. Whenever it gets to the high court, I think you can't really predict which way it will go because um, you know all sorts of important stuff has to be considered by those guys, including the precedent and the constitution, and you know all the various case law mm. and that kind of stuff. So you know it could go either way, and I think. Let's just um, hypothetically suggest that it fails. Um, that's going to leave the government with all sorts of egg on its face, I think. It will look very silly indeed. It will, of course, be a triumph for the Conservatives who will have got what they wanted, which would be the, the whole thing sabotaged. Mm. Um, and I think it will further damage Malcolm Turnbull's credibility. So I think Turnbull and, and the, the Liberal government in general will be hoping, very much hoping, that the High Court let the plebiscite go through. Yes, but if they don't, uh, I know that there are, well, Dean Smith, for example, who's sponsoring a private member's bill, might be very um, keen to initiate that bill and move on it, given that this would have failed. Sure. I mean, I think we'll see more parliamentary activism on the issue should the plebiscite fail. But, uh, you know, well, will the government let a, a vote come to the floor? I mean, they're not, they don't have to let private members' bills uh, be voted on. Mm, so that, it is their own party member, though. Well, some <laughs> would say that, that gives odd. it even less chance. Mm, we'll see. It, isn't it all about the Liberal Party enabling backbenchers to, uh, you know, have a free conscience and speak their mind and, you know, just as Tony Abbott feels free to speak his mind at regular intervals? I mean, to be fair to the Liberal Party, they do have many backbenchers who do speak their mind mm. on a wide range of topics <laughs> very frequently. Yeah. Um, much to the horror of the Turnbull administration, <laughs> I'd argue. It is one of those unique features of the Liberal Party because Labor, of course, you would get kicked out for not tying the line. Look, Labor has a much um, stronger binding caucus than the Liberal Party and always has. And this kind of goes back to the long history of the Labor Party and the trade union movement. But um, And might I add, I mean, this is the whole reason why we don't have same-sex marriage in this country is that the Labor caucus mm. bound its members to vote no on same-sex marriages as recently as several years ago. So yep. you had several of the people currently campaigning for same-sex marriage, like Penny Wong, mm. actually voted against it only a few years ago. And that's something to remember, I think. Sure is. It sure is. We have certainly barely moved the debate along since then, but at least we've got Labor behind this issue now, finally. No, we have moved the debate along quite a lot, and I think if the plebiscite... Not in Parliament, Ben. Well, maybe not in Parliament. I'm talking about our politicians. (laughs) Yes, well, as in so many other aspects, they are trailing a fair way behind the rest of Australia. As usual. Uh, Yeah, as usual. Uh, Now, Ben... Bill Shorten has released proof that he isn't a British citizen, a UK citizen. He finally gave in because it keeps coming up. You know, it, they, the Liberal Party, presumed this could be a real, a real, you know, moment for them to uh, undermine Labor, and it's really just shown that, you know, Bill was saying all along he had the proof and. Here he is. Yeah, I mean, uh, consistently throughout this whole citizenship debacle, Labor has been shown to have done their homework, basically, with all the Labor members seem to be in the clear on this. And it's the other parties that have got into big trouble, particularly the minor parties and the nationals. Um, 
But, yeah, the citizenship saga continues to roll on. Mm -hmm. Um, We've had news in the last 24 hours or so that Stuart Robert, the disgraced former cabinet minister, uh, may also now be potentially falling foul of Section 44, not under citizenship, but um, under the fact that a company that he was a director of was actually engaged in contracting to the federal government while he was a member of parliament and indeed a minister. Mm. So um, that could make him vulnerable. Stuart Robert was a uh, top fundraiser for the LNP up on the Gold Coast um, before he um, did a few silly things on a trip to China and got himself fired from the ministry a couple of years ago. That takes me back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Accepted <laughs> some um, some gifts. Yeah, that's um, right. Oh, wow. Yeah, also um, clearly fell foul of the ministerial code of conduct mm. and Turnbull sacked him. Mm. Um, so, but of course, um, if he's found to be in breach, then that's another LNP member who might have to, they might have to have a by-election or whatever. So yep. that would definitely make uh, a, be a, a big vulnerability for the coalition's mm. one-seat majority. And we saw uh, yesterday that in Parliament there was a vote uh, calling for Barnaby Joyce to step down uh, from his Cabinet position whilst his citizenship uh, question is being heard in the High Court and uh, the government only won that vote by one vote. Uh, the crossbenchers did actually side yeah. with Labor on that one. Yeah, Barnaby voted for himself, exactly. which is, um, I guess, consistent. <laughs> that's about the only thing that's been consistent with this whole citizenship saga, though, of yeah. course, because Matt Canavan did step down from he the did. cabinet, but Barnaby has not. So, you know, yeah, it's a, it's an ongoing mess for the government and it, it is affecting the, the confidence of the parliament, I think. Mm. Uh, so the High Court is going to rule on seven members of parliament and the Senate over the next uh, well, after they do the uh, the plebiscite, they're going to move on to the citizenship. So busy times for our yeah. Chief Justices. Absolutely. Uh, now, Ben, there's another thing that uh, we're hoping to talk about today, which is the proposed cuts to universities in Australia that were announced um, when the Gonski 2.0 proposal came out. Now, what is the situation with the cuts at the moment and how big are they? Yeah, well, um, we said we'd do some policy last week, didn't we, Amy? We did. Let's look at a bit of a burning policy issue at the moment um, that's uh, exercising a lot of people's attentions in the higher education sector, which is the government's proposed $2.4 billion cuts to higher education. Um, There's also, as part of those proposals, an increase to the fees that students would pay um, and a reduction in the threshold of their HEX repayments. So they would have to start paying back their university debts uh, when they reach a lower income level. Mm. Um, So um, this was actually announced in last year's budget um, and the government has stuck firm to it, but it's been unable to get it through the Senate. Um, But Education Minister Simon Birmingham is ploughing ahead with these proposals. Um, What did he say most recently about So he he gave a speech to all of the vice-chancellors at a big higher education conference last week. Yep. And basically told them to suck it up, that, um, you know, that they were making plenty of money, um, which in the case of the vice-chancellors personally is undoubtedly true. Mm. Some Um, more than others. Yeah, yeah. Um, But, you know, he said, look, a lot of your universities are in surplus. A lot of your universities are building big buildings. You clearly aren't short of a dollar. So um, the government is in deficit. We need to save some money. So, yeah, you guys are it. 
Um, so not a particularly sympathetic speech there to the higher education community. Um, and, of course, um, that's led to considerable speculation that the government's going to try and plough ahead with that and maybe even further budget cuts. Now, um, the effects of these budget cuts will be modest. I mean, it's a very big sector and it don't, won't necessarily be of the kind of scale of the budget cuts that were defeated but were proposed in 2014. You might remember back in 2014, Christopher Pine, who was the then education minister, wanted to cut mm. a whopping 20% of university funding and that was extremely controversial and that was the sort of $100,000 degrees um, controversy that Labor seized on and made so much um, hay out of. But um, these cuts are still significant while they're not as big as that and they will certainly lead to further pressure on the higher education sector um, and of course most of the pain will be felt by current and future students. Yeah and in New South Wales Western Sydney University actually will be the biggest loser of funding um, of 54.1 million over the next four years. So the figures have come out for how it will affect each individual university um, universities aren't really, although they look like, but they're not technically businesses, uh, they are there to conduct research and teach students, uh, among other things, and train our next teachers and academics. Uh, and Ben, I know you work at a university too, that, like this kind of... Um, university work is quite uh, insecure work. It's very much um, often, if you're not a professor and you're not tenured, then you're really kind of on a contract by contract basis. Or if you're tutoring, it's, you know, subject by subject. Now, I mean, is that really, it's going to make things worse, isn't it, for, for people in those situations? Yes, it will. It will definitely uh, increase the insecurity of what's already quite an insecure sector for the workers in there. Um, yes, I should declare that I am a university lecturer, so I have a vested interest in this discussion. I would like more funding for universities. Thanks very much. Um, but it is it is the case that um, more than half of the workforce of universities are casualised. Mm. So either true casuals like tutors or um, on very short-term contracts, rolling contracts. Um, and it's uh, increasingly a problem, I think, for the higher education sector. And we're starting to see real industrial unrest in universities. Um, for example, over in WA, Murdoch University has been involved in a bitter dispute with the union, the NTEU, over their enterprise bargaining negotiations, uh, resulting, in fact, in the Fair Work Commission throwing out the enterprise agreement for that entire university. So um, very significant development in IR there mm. um, basically means they've thrown out 30 years' worth of pay and conditions and gone back to the award over there at Murdoch Uni. Um, so if that were to be replicated across the other universities, it would have extremely big implications, really, for wages and conditions across the higher education sector. It certainly would, Ben. Uh, now, just finally, you mentioned off-air, there's been a little somewhat amusing development in Western Australia, that state um, that's sometimes a bit different in their approach <laughs> to politics. What, what occurred there, Ben? The Western Australian Liberals have passed a motion that they will investigate seceding from the Australian Commonwealth. Mm. So uh, it'll be the, the nation, Western Australia will become a nation in, yeah, in and of itself. presumably a constitutional monarchy mm, of Western of Australia. Of course, of course. Uh, I don't think they'll be a republic, will they? <laughs> no. Uh, yes, I mean, look, every few years this thing rolls around, generally in relation to WA's declining share of the GST revenue oh, pool. Yeah. 
Um, and uh, the West Australians get very upset and they say, well, why don't we just leave Australia? <laughs> um, which uh, uh, there are a few few minor issues there, as yeah. you, we might point out. Um, so uh, WA, if it were to leave the Commonwealth, would need, uh, well, its, its own army and navy and air force, uh, presumably its own reserve bank and currency, um, mm. its own customs officials. Um, there's, there's quite a few expenses involved with setting up your own sovereign nation. Not sure if the West Australian Liberals have really thought that one through. Possibly not. Uh, also, they'll be getting no GST at all at that point, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> and the mining boom seems to have tapered off, Ben. Yes, rather. Um, I mean... You know, Greg Jericho has a really funny article in The Guardian today. Yeah. I'm always mentioning Greg Jericho. I know oh, he is fabulous. He is pretty great. Yeah. Um, and he just points out, you know, like if, if WA succeeds, it'll, it'll be an economy about the size of New Zealand, but basically based around mining. So <laughs> they'll be completely dependent on the price of iron ore. And mm. if the price is up, then WA's up. And if the price is down, then they'll struggle. And of course, it's in the times when the, the mining boom is not running hot that WA turns to the rest of Australia and asks for a bit of help. Yes. Um, and that's the point of a Commonwealth, isn't it? You know, the whole idea of the GST is to spread the income around the states and territories so that those that need extra help, like Tasmania and Northern Territory, and mm. for 90 years until, you know, very recently, Western Australia, um, those smaller states have long been propped up by the, the richer states like New South Wales and Victoria. Um, and, and that's part of the deal. Uh, and so if they want to call all the bets off and leave the Commonwealth, then they'll, they'll have a few issues, I think. They may, they may. Always good to end on a funny note, Ben. Now, thank you so much for coming in. I hope you start feeling better. Yeah, me too, Amy. Thank you. <laughs> that was Ben Eltham from New Matilda, who is our regular person to come in and chat about federal politics. And you are listening to Uncommon Sense. 3 RFM and I am Amy Mullins. Very excited now to have with me Dania Jacobs, who is a forest lawyer at Environmental Justice Australia. Hi, Dania. Hi, Amy. Hi. Thanks for joining me. I was just telling you before that um, forest lawyer sounds like the best title in the world. <laughs> I'm a little bit jealous. Um, now, you get to do some pretty awesome work with Environmental Justice Australia. Um not only do you kind of cover these issues around native forest logging and uh, like protection of species through the Flora and Fauna Guarantee Act, but you also represent individual environmentalists who get caught up sometimes in these conflicts between, um, you know, businesses or Vic Forests and, um, you know, citizen scientists who are out there trying to monitor the situation and look after these animals. That's right, yeah. We um, both uh, act for community groups that are concerned with threatened species protection, usually in forest areas that are close to their local communities out in regional and remote Victoria. Um, and we also act for individual community members who travel out to these areas and um, either are protesting against logging that's occurring that they're really concerned about, or um, often they're finding and documenting threatened species in communities like rainforest that should really be protected from 
the impacts of logging. Exactly. So we've got you here today to talk about a couple of things. It is National Threatened Species Day on Thursday, so it's all very topical at the moment. Um, That said, we've probably spoken uh, in a range of ways about this topic uh, about three or four times this year already because it is that important and it's currently a really hot issue politically but also environmentally. So first of all, um, the areas that we're going to be discussing uh, are broadly the central highlands in Victoria as well as um, there's a, a couple of or well, an area in East Gippsland which is very bio, um, has a lot of biodiversity and also does um, host a range of threatened species. So um, I was really interested when I was looking into this issue to see that Environmental Justice Australia, you appeared um, at a inquiry, a standing committee inquiry in Victoria into um, Vic Forest operations and this is, you know, a question about, or it really draws out the tension, which is that uh, one side of politics wants more logging and more areas of native forest to be opened up. And then there are other people who have grave concerns for what that would mean um, in terms of protecting the uh, environment that ensures that these threatened species aren't extinct. Uh, So first of all, what is the governing law around uh, native forest logging in Victoria? Um, It's actually a really complex area of law. There are about four different acts at the state level um, that regulate logging in our public forests. Um, One of those is the Flora and Fauna Guarantee Act and under that act the government has to make action statements for uh, threatened species that are listed under that law and those action statements are meant to contain mandatory rules or prescriptions uh, to protect threatened species um, in areas that are subject to logging um, particularly when they're specifically located in those areas, so on a sort of detection basis. But what we know is that, um, A, the government is really behind preparing those action statements, so there are a lot of species that have been listed as threatened under that Act but still don't have any mandatory rules. <clears throat> so that's a really big problem. And as well as that, um, we also know that for many species that do have action statements, the rules are not good enough to protect them properly from logging. Um, so one of the common problems that we face is that a rule might say you've got to create a protected area when you find this species, but then um, the devil is in the detail and what we see on the ground is that the protected area might be placed away from where that species has actually been found or located. So it enables the actual detection sites, um, locations that we know these species are using to be logged um, and then a protected area placed somewhere else where we don't even know whether the species is actually in there and using that area. Mm. So that's one of the problems. Um, But on a a bigger scale, I guess what we know is that the rules that are there to protect threatened species under the Flora and Fauna Guarantee Act are not adequate um, based on current science. So what the scientists are telling us is necessary um, to maintain you know, viable communities of these species into the future. That's not um, reflected in those laws at the moment. No, and that's currently under review, the Flora and Fauna Guarantee Act, isn't it? That's right. It is under review. Um, It's proceeded quite slowly and we don't really have too much clarity about where it's headed at the moment. Um, There was a public consultation a few months ago um, and we're still awaiting the government response to that consultation to see what the specific proposals for reform moving forward will be. Mm. And one of the other areas of law that is relevant, I believe, is the Sustainable Forests, in brackets, Timber Act, 
um, which really means that or outlines that Vic Forests is required to manage state forests allocated to it and conduct its operations consistent with the principles of ecologically sustainable forest management. Now, without like going through the entire act, uh, what does what is sustainable forest management ecologically sustainable? Uh, you know, what are the key things that this act is supposed to do to ensure that you know species like the leadbeater's possum and the greater glider that are threatened are protected? Um, so the Sustainable Forest Timber Act is um, one of the key laws that regulates logging in Victoria and um, one of the objectives of sustainable forest management includes protecting biological diversity um, and that's a really fundamental principle of ecologically sustainable forest management. Um, but as I was explaining earlier, what we know is that that objective or that promise in the Act is not being met um, in terms of the specific operations that are occurring on the ground in areas that threatened species are using. And another area where we're seeing... Um, that promise of ecologically sustainable forest management and protection of biological diversity um, failing or we're not meeting that that requirement is in um, the ways in which Vic Forest and the government go about predicting and setting what we called sustainable, I put that in inverted commas, sustainable timber yields. So what you would, um, one of the fundamental principles that we would expect to see in determining what a sustainable timber yield is, is you would factor in um, protection of the areas that are necessary to maintain viable populations of threatened species into the future and in fact to allow threatened species to recover. So mm. one of the fundamental principles, I guess, of, of um sustainability and um, the objectives of threatened species protection is that we actually want to see threatened species coming off the threatened list. We want to see them recovering. We want to see their populations improving, not declining. Um, but what we know is that timber yields in Victoria don't factor in whatsoever the areas that are required to be protected for threatened species. So that's just not a data input, which um, I think is really quite remarkable in 2017. It is remarkable. And what about the um, 200 metre buffer that exists at the moment, um, which is supposed to uh, look after and protect um, areas where a leadbeater's possum or a greater glider, for example, is found? I mean, that 200 metre zone apparently is... Uh, not realistic and uh, and really is highly inadequate. What would be a more adequate exclusion zone? Like, has the science been done around that? Yeah, so that's um, a really good example of what I was explaining earlier. So the action statement that was made under the Flora and Fauna Guarantee Act for the Leadbeater's Possum requires 200 metre buffers to be placed um, on every detection of a leadbeater's possum found in state forests, so in areas that are open to logging. But what we know from the scientists is that those 200 metre buffers are really inadequate to ensure the protection of leadbeater's possum into the future. Um, and when, for example, just one bushfire um, that destroys 12.5% of the Leadbeater's Possum Reserve is factored into the analysis, there's a 65% chance of extinction for that species. And if um, a, bush, a future bushfire affects, for example, 25% um, of the reserve system for Leadbeater's Possum, there's a 90% chance of extinction. Those are really quite remarkable figures mm. um, and the government's analysis of the conservation benefits of those 200 metre buffers um, is really 
based on a, quite an implausible scenario that there would be 200 years without bushfire in its habitat. And I think we all know from our own experiences of bushfire recently that that um, is just completely unrealistic. Mm, so it's certainly not the case in the area we're talking about. They've had bushfires in the early thousands still trying to recover now. I was there and saw the sign saying a bushfire was here and we've had to, you know, replant some of these trees and so it's protected at the moment so they can grow. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the area um, that the Leadbeater's possum uses, the Central Highlands, um, forests of Victoria um, were subject to those horrific bushfires in 2009 and um, the possum has really been struggling to recover ever since and it's, um, its habitat area has really diminished as a result of those bushfires. So Mm. um, what we know from the scientists is that not only is 200 metres not enough, what we really need to be seeing is um, a buffer more like a kilometre. But as well as that um, one kilometre buffer, we need to see a large-scale protection of the habitat of the Leadbeater's possum rather than having protection that's solely, well, mostly reliant on detection of the species on an ongoing basis. Mm. Um, So we need to see large new reserves in the central highlands area of Victoria and we also need to see outside of those reserves improved protections for individual leadbeater's possums, but also, um, importantly, for hollow-bearing trees. So hollow-bearing trees are the key habitat resource for leadbeater's possum. They're critical to the ongoing survival of that species. And we know that hollow-bearing trees are disappearing really rapidly um, from the central highlands. Well, they are old-growth trees, those kind of trees, and they take up to 100 years to start having those hollows. So, you know, this is a critical um, juncture, really, to have a long-term view on things instead of a short-term profit-driven view. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, I mean, I think a long-term view for the Central Highlands Forest, one of the key... um, key things that we need to see happen is we need to be growing the future old growth forests now instead of cutting um, that future old growth resource which really um, is what's referred to as the 39 fire region so um, a lot of the forest areas now that are used by the Leadbeater's possum and that are also really heavily targeted by the logging industry Mm. are areas that grew back following the 39 bushfires and those areas are what we call now the sort of future old growth resource and there's been a number of recommendations made to allow what what stands of the 39 forest to grow into a future old growth forest to provide habitat not only for leadbeater's possum but also for a range of other hollow dependent species that are also really threatened by logging one of which um, is the greater glider that's recently come to the fore. It's um, sadly Victoria's newest threatened species. It was added to the threatened list a couple of months ago now. And shockingly, that species receives no protection whatsoever um, in the Central Highlands forests. And Mm. um, a really critical example of that that's quite current um, is a logging coop um, in which the community found and reported seven greater gliders. There were also three leadbeater's possums found in that area um, and logging commenced in, in that, we call it a logging coop, an area that's sort of been mapped out and planned for logging. Logging commenced there the week before last. 
um, and there's no protections in place for the greater gliders that are in that coop and what the science is telling us is that um, greater gliders will almost always die uh, when their home range, which is quite small, is logged or mostly logged. So really terrible predicament for that species um, mm. and one that I think will continue to decline until we see government action. And has an action statement been developed for the greater glider? Not yet. So we know that the government are working on an action statement um, and I believe that their intention is to try to finalise that by the end of this year. Um, but in the meantime, there is no protection whatsoever for that species in the Central Highlands Forest and logging has just been proceeding mm. um, in areas where really quite significant populations of the species have been found. And um, we've really seen... I think the government's sitting on its hands in relation to that species and um, we've seen on a number of occasions the community find and report the presence of that species in areas that are scheduled to be logged and the government um, just writes back to those really quite detailed reports saying we're still determining our interim protection measures for the greater glider and um, your work will help us inform what those protections are. Um, but then logging is allowed to go ahead anyway. And mm. um, that's now happened, I believe, on three or four occasions. So this is not the first uh, coop that this has happened in. It's really an ongoing um, situation and it's one that really needs to be addressed urgently um, because that species is, um, is declining as we sit around talking about what we should do to protect it. Exactly. And the State Environment Minister, Lily D'Ambrosio, she did only about a month ago say that one of the logging coops, I think it was in Hermitage Creek, would be the, the logging would be paused in that area. Um, and my understanding, and we were just discussing this off air, is that the, there are five coops that were due to be logged. What's been happening to those five, including the one that the minister had said, you know, the, that they would halt logging in? So that's right. There are five coops in the area that's now referred to as Hermitage Creek. And that's um, a really quite a significant pocket of high quality habitat for the greater glider and the northern part of that area is also a place where there have been three lead beaters possums found so it's also very significant habitat for the lead beaters possum the first of those five coops um, was scheduled to be logged a few weeks ago uh, and following reports from the community of a very significant population of greater gliders in that coop, the government um, said that it was conducting an assessment into the quality of greater glider habitat in one of those five and that logging would not proceed until it had identified and protected the greater glider habitat in that one coop. Um, and then we saw uh, seven greater gliders found, documented and reported to the government in um, the northern, so another one of the five coops um, a couple of weeks ago and logging went ahead in that coop regardless. So the government um, has not uh, taken any steps to assess or protect um, habitat for the greater glider in that northern coop um, despite there being as well as seven greater gliders, three lead beaters, possums there. And then um, there are three other coops um, and it's unclear what Vic Forest's intentions are in relation to logging in those coops. So they could be logged any day. Um, 
And I'm just, I'm not sure whether Vic Forest intends to go in there today, tomorrow, or in a few months' time. Mm. We just don't know. It seems like a really inconsistent approach to, you know, protect one group and then not do anything about another when you have the presence of a threatened species. That's absolutely right. It's it's a really inconsistent approach. Um, And I think, I mean don't want to be too cynical, but it's hard to not view what the government did on one coop as um, an effort to sort of improve their publicity really mm. <clears throat> without um, taking action that that is available to them um, that is actually going to have the effect of protecting this species in areas where it's been found and areas that we know um, are currently being used and are therefore really important to be protected. Mm. Well, they did get very good publicity out of that because I was watching the response on Twitter, which is usually very cynical. (laughs) And my response was, well, why don't we just halt all native forest logging in that area why don't we not have that at all and that is a question that came up in this um, inquiry and people can check out the transcript online Um, the question was well what happens um, if we don't have native forest logging now David Lindenmeyer who appeared on our show uh, a couple of weeks ago said that he's not saying let's ban all logging he's saying let's move to plantations uh, because that still provides the Uh, you know, wood that is required for the products that are being created in this state. Um, And you certainly in this this inquiry also pointed out that plantations already exist uh, and that they just need to be, I guess, encouraged and enabled to continue and to grow. I mean, in your view, just how ready could we be to transition to plantation forest logging as opposed to native forest logging? Mm. So I think the first point that's really important to make is that we're already transitioning to plantation logging. So, um, for example, the Australian paper mill at Maryvale, which is the single largest purchaser um, of both native forest but also of plantation wood um, locally in the state, they already use um, more than well over 50% of their feedstock um, is coming from plantations. And we also know that more broadly in the construction sector, um, really large proportions of the wood that's being used now is from plantations. And the plantation sector is much larger, employs far more people um, than the ailing and dwindling native forest logging industry. So the native forest logging industry is already in decline. It has been for some time. The plantation industry um, is continuing to grow and it's continuing to make an increased contribution to the state's economy and and to employment. Um, Mm. In fact, now the largest export Woodchip Port um, is at Portland and that's in Western Victoria and their feedstock is entirely from plantations. So that transition is already occurring. We know that we have the plantation resource ready and available to meet our fibre needs. So Australian paper could replace um, the feedstock that it's currently taking from the Central Highlands, which are the habitat for critically endangered leadbeater's possum, that could be supplemented and replaced with um, with wood from plantations, mm. particularly in Western Victoria. So I think it's certainly feasible. Um, we also know that a really large proportion of the wood that's taken from native forests for saw logs is used in really low-value saw log products. So I think it would shock quite a lot of Victorians to know that one of the largest saw log products that we produce from these critically endangered forests is pallets. 
So pellets are an extremely low value product and it's, um, I think it's just obvious for everyone. You don't need to be an expert or a rocket scientist to know that we don't need to be using critically endangered forests to make pellets. Um, we can use other things. No. So. Other countries have come to that realisation a lot faster than we have as well. So we're a bit behind when it comes to international practice. Yeah, we certainly are. Um, and our forestry practices are so behind. So um, we know that, for example, the forestry industry in Victoria has never been able to get FSC certification and that's the sort of international benchmark for some degree of um, market confidence in the sustainability of the industry. And the Victorian industry has never been able to get um, that certification because it is not a sustainable industry um, and it can't be when logging continues within areas that we know are necessary for the continued survival of critically endangered species like Leadbeater's possum. Mm. Um, <coughs> I want to ask you, Danya, because you are really at the forefront of this issue right now, what can people like our listeners right now do if they're feeling powerless about this issue because I know I regularly feel powerless <laughs> and I feel like I need to continue to bring the evidence forward in any way I can but what can we actually do individually or collectively to start changing this? Um, it's a really good question. Um, I think there are a few different things that people can do. Um, one of the <clears throat> perhaps the best things that people can do is not buy reflex paper. So um, what a lot of people perhaps don't know is that reflex paper that you buy at Officeworks and at your local news agency is made from forests um, in the central highlands that are the core habitat for species like Leadbeater's possum. Um, and not only should um, the community be exercising their choice to not purchase that product, but they it's also really important to register your concern both with your local supplier and with the manufacturer of Reflex and um, with stores like Officeworks um, and also to start having that conversation in your workplace. So um, businesses are really large purchasers of Reflex and um, we know that if the community um, registers its concern and, and says, look, we don't want to buy these products anymore, we want products that are sustainable, that's one way of affecting change and getting manufacturers like the Merritt Vale Mill to take seriously the transition to plantation that really needs to happen. Yeah. Um, another thing that people can do is to get in touch with their local member. It's really important at the moment um, to be telling your local member that forest conservation is a really big issue for you, that you want to see our forests and our threatened species protected and you're sick of the government sitting on its hands and doing nothing about this issue. Um, it needs to be solved now. Um, the research is in. It's clear what areas need to be protected um, and the government needs to just take the action and... Um and start protecting those areas. Yeah. yeah, and the research has been in for a long time because the work that, and it's not only David, but the work that Professor David Lindenmeyer has done at the ANU is one of the longest running studies of an area, the Central Highlands and the mountain ash forests themselves, as well as those um, animals that are reliant upon um, the, the mountain ash forests. I mean, he's been doing this work for so long. Um, he's a prolific <laughs> 
publisher of journal articles on this. So I encourage people, if you're interested, to look out for David's research, but you can also listen back to our interview with David on the SoundCloud, uh, Uncommon Sense SoundCloud page, just so you can arm yourself with more evidence and information if you want to advocate on this issue. Um, Danya, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your legal expertise because it's so valued and really important and, um, yeah, wishing you all the best on this issue and, and other activities um, of Environmental Justice Australia. Thanks very much, Amy. That was Dania Jacobs, who is a forest lawyer at Environmental Justice Australia, and um, clearly they do some really vital work. And um, you know, so look them up on the, online. And uh, if you're passionate about this issue, uh, there are many things you can do to make your voice heard and to create change. And you can also just go down to the forest and visit it and start connecting with this area that we talk so often about. It's only about an hour and twenty minutes drive from the city. You can can get there very easily. Um, I've been there just recently, as I mentioned, to Tulangi State Forest, and it is just stunning. Uh, so do get on down and really um, connect with the area itself as well. And you're listening to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. And it's my great pleasure to have with me uh, historian Rutger Bregman, who's written a book called Utopia for Realists and How We Can Get There. It's published by Bloomsbury and Rutger is in Melbourne for the Melbourne Writers' Festival. And uh, we're very pleased to have him uh, with us now in the studio. Hi, Rutger. Hi there. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. It's That's really good. great to be here in Melbourne. Yeah, no, we're, it's good to have you. We're very cultural, or we like to think we are. So, <laughs> <laughs> the the Melbourne Writers Festival tends to be one of the highlights, the calendar mm-hmm. highlights. And uh, I know you gave a lecture, or you were in conversation with Van Badham about your book just recently. Uh-huh. Uh, so, I'm really pleased and excited to go through this book because it raises some important ideas and it is also about, as you say, creating the space to have these ideas, big ideas, mm-hmm. um, and to not be constrained by the ideologies of the time and to, exactly. to create a new utopia because the old version is tired and now no longer applicable. Mm-hmm. So I guess you set the scene as a historian, you give a lot of context around the idea of utopia. And I mean, many of our listeners will know of Thomas More's utopia, uh, but there are also other kind of versions and, and you reference the medieval mm-hmm. idea of utopia and then bring bring it back uh, throughout the book, The Land of Plenty. Could you share with us more about this historical context of utopia and the concept that it did have and the meaning it had for others in the past? Sure, sure. Well, the title of the book is Utopia for Realists. So what I mean with that is that utopia can actually become real and it has become real many, many times in the past. Um, If you look at all the milestones of civilization, stuff that we are used to right now, uh, democracy, equal rights for men and women, the end of slavery, uh, the welfare state, all these ideas, institutions were completely ludicrous, crazy ones. So there was there was one time when a person came up with these ideas and people said, well, that's unreasonable. We can't pay for that. That's a really ridiculous idea. Uh, I think that's how progress always begins. It starts with completely crazy ideas. So my book is full of crazy ideas and things that may seem, well, unrealistic right now, but I think they can be realistic in the future. Yes, we're looking at a huge history here and you talk about uh, how 
<laughs> humans were always impoverished or they were deeply impoverished mm-hmm. for a very long time and it was only in the the late uh, 1800s that we saw a big shift yes, occur yes. and we have had a great deal of prosperity mm-hmm. in the meantime which we now in the developed uh, world take for granted quite a great deal. And one of the areas that you talk about or write about in the book is how um, there was this assumption that if we became more prosperous, uh, we would be ending up working a great deal less. Mm -hmm. However, we seem to work more and consume more Mm -hmm. and have far less leisure time and that it's socially less acceptable to have leisure time than it did, uh, say, in the 19th Mm -hmm. century when those who were very well off, that was a a status symbol to have leisure time. That crazy idea that you have about working way less than we are right now. Could Mm -hmm. you share with us what that idea is for you Mm -hmm. and how you think that could actually be a reality? It's pretty interesting that if you look at the history of the 20th century, that up until the 1970s, so many of the greatest thinkers all believed that we would be working less and less and less. All the economists, all the sociologists, all the philosophers thought that the great challenge of the future was going to be boredom. Like, what are we going to do with all that time when the robots have taken all our jobs and we we get richer and richer and richer? You know, the British economist John Maynard Keynes, he wrote an essay in 1930 uh, and where he predicted that we would have a 15-hour work week in 2030. Now, that might seem crazy, but, I mean, up until 1980, I mean, it, it was true. The work week was shrinking and shrinking. It's only fairly recently that we've been working more and more. Now, I think there are two explanations for that. The first one is obviously consumerism. So we keep on using money we don't have to buy stuff we don't need, to impress people we don't like. So that's that's happening a lot. Uh, but probably the most important reason is that capitalism is just capitalism is, ex- is extraordinary at coming up with new jobs that really don't need to exist. Mm, so and, uh, according to some recent recent polls, In many developed countries, about a third of all jobs that we have right now are completely useless. And that's people themselves saying it about their own jobs. Yes. Well, you reference a survey from the Harvard Business Review uh, of 12,000 professionals and half of which in that sample size said they felt their job had no meaning and significance. I'm sure many people listening might be questioning the importance of their role, just how much they're contributing to the betterment of society, perhaps. And you do reference some of those, as has been termed, bullshit jobs Mm -hmm. that people feel is uh, quite meaningless. Not only is it a perception that it's meaningless, but that really does it actually add that much value? Mm -hmm. And is it, as you say, is it creating wealth or just shifting wealth around? Mm -hmm. I found that a really interesting and important point that you made around the financial industry. Mm -hmm. What is is really bizarre is that, I mean, the better your resume is, the higher your salary is, the bigger the chance that you have a bullshit job. Right, so that's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. It's it's not the teachers or the garbage collectors or the nurses that say, you know, my job doesn't read really add anything of value. You never hear that. It's mostly consultants, corporate lawyers, bankers, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, mm. who. Uh, who often admit of their own jobs that they don't really add anything. Um, and, and one great way to find out whether a job is useful or not is just to go on strike. Now, we've seen throughout history that every time that garbage collectors or nurses uh, or teachers go on strike, well, that's a disaster. You know, we really can do without these jobs. Uh, but I found only one example in all of world history of bankers going on strike. It was mm. in Ireland, 1970. The strike lasted for six months, <laughs> and the economy just kept growing. You know, it yeah. didn't make much of a difference. 
It's quite amazing, but not that surprising when you think about it. Yeah, I mean, a huge part of the financial sector is not about producing wealth anymore. It's about taking wealth of others, basically. And if you don't believe me saying that, I mean, the International Monetary Fund, like neoliberal institutions are saying pretty much the same thing right now. Yeah. And one of the ideas or solutions there you bring up is taxation. And uh, if you tax, um, you know, for example, the transferring of fast trading stocks, that that would reduce the amount of superfluous trading and shifting of wealth that Mm -hmm. is quite meaningless and useless for, you know, the average person. Exactly. I think it's one of the great tragedies of our time that we are wasting so much talent and energy of of like our smartest and most ambitious young people, you know, on on crap that is being Mm. produced in either Silicon Valley or on Wall Street, for example. I mean, there's a great quote from a Mathwis, who who worked at Facebook and said that the greatest minds of my generation are thinking about how to make people click on ads. And it doesn't have to be this way. You know, we can create a different kind of economy with different incentives where people actually do something that they care about that mm. do, does contribute to the common good. Mm. How do you change that conversation? Because this is happening at tertiary education institutions mm-hmm. uh, where people going to university, they're deterred from studying an arts or humanities uh, degree, for example, in order to be doing something more like accounting or law or Mm. business or commerce because that, or STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering, because that's what's needed in the the 21st century. Um, And it seems like a very simplistic and reductive and um, it pushes people into areas that they really would find meaningless or useless. How do we um, redefine what we need for the 21st century Mm -hmm. in terms of the skills and jobs and for it not to just be such a one-sided thing like Mm -hmm. arts and humanities is superfluous and science, technology and engineering is, you know, deified. Mm -hmm. I think we just have to go back to very, very basic questions. So, for example, let's go back to the question, what is work or who are the real wealth creators? What is progress? Now, if you'd ask a regular politician, he'd say, well, progress is economic growth. And economic growth, the growth of GDP, gross domestic product. Now, then, if you look at the history of that concept, it was invented by a Russian-American economist, Simon Kuznets, who said back in the 1930s, when he presented GDP, his concept of GDP to Congress, he said, don't ever use this as a measure of progress, (laughs) because it's not. And if you do, then at least subtract all military spending, all spending, you know, all the whole financial sector, Mm. all spending on advertising, because that doesn't contribute anything of value, according to Kuznets. Um, I think that's really where it starts. My definition of work or wealth creators would be, those are the people that make the world a little bit more interesting, right? Make it a little bit more beautiful, That that uh, and, and they can define it for themselves. Um, now, if we would introduce something like a universal basic income, which is one of the main ideas in the book, um, everyone can decide for themselves what they want to do with their lives and mm-hmm. how they want to contribute. And I think in that scenario, the wages of the jobs that we have will much better reflect the social value of those jobs. Mm. And we will get to that in just a minute. You put a quote at the top of one of the chapter titles from Buckminster Fuller, who mm-hmm. I feel is quite an underrecognized thinker mm-hmm. <laughs> from the 20th century. So I was very pleased to see it there. But it, it brings us to just what we're saying now, and I'll just read it out. The true business of people should be to go back to school and think about whatever it was they were thinking about before somebody came along and told them they had to earn a living. Mm -hmm. Now, as you say, that ties directly into this idea of 
earning a living wage, feeling secure enough to be able to have mm. a long-term view and uh, and to be able to make stable decisions as to what drives you as a person rather than immediately in the short term how you can keep a roof over your head. And, uh, and that is one of those big ideas you mm-hmm. have is this universal basic income. So let's come to that. You have some excellent case studies in there. There was one uh, which was really fascinating to me in Canada, mm-hmm. which I'd love for you to share because it just sounds like there are so many reasons why things went awry at the end. But at the beginning, it's, it seemed like what an amazing, yeah. you know, flagship idea of yeah, any and country. It is a completely bizarre history. I mean, not many people know that at the end of the 60s, almost everyone in both Canada and the US believed that some form of basic income was going to be implemented sooner rather than later. Mm. I mean, the Democrats were in favor of it. The Republicans were in favor of it, of it. Richard Nixon, of all people, actually had a modest basic income that got through the House of Representatives twice, and it was killed by the, in the Senate by the left because they wanted a higher basic income. And indeed, we also had lots of fascinating trials of basic income. And, and one of those was in a small town called Dauphin in, in, in Canada. Uh, and this was called the town with no poverty because they completely eradicate poverty there. As soon as you fell below the poverty line, your income was automatically topped up. The experiment lasted for four years. Lots of anthropologists, economists, sociologists, they all descended on the town, did their research, you know, collected a lot of data, did interviews, etc. But after four years, there was a new government that came into power and they said, this is a really weird experiment. You're actually giving money just to people. Stop this at once. And so there was no money left mm. to do the analysis. And it had all, they all had to put it away in 2,000 boxes. And for 25 years, it was just in the archives. Every, everyone had forgotten about it. And, and just 10 years ago, a um, Canadian professor heard about it. Her name is Evelyn Forget. Uh, she did the research, did the analysis, and discovered that the experiment had been a huge success. Mm. Uh, crime went down. Kids performed much better in school. Healthcare costs uh, declined by 8.5%. Domestic violence were down, was down. Mental health complaints were down. It's really incredible. And no, it was not true that people turned out to be massively lazy. They mm. did not waste their money on alcohol or drugs. There was an explosion of creativity going on there. And this is what we find time and time again in all these basic income experiments. And most fascinating, actually, that, that's, that's what we learned from another experiment in the 90s in the US, is that actually this basic income pays for itself. Because, you know, you spend so much less money on, on health care and, and, and crime and, and, you know, kids, kids who are not doing very well in school, is that actually those savings are bigger than the basic income itself. Mm. Um, so in that sense, it is literally free money. And... I've also found it interesting and and very revealing in an Australian context where our federal governments have very much demonised impoverished people, particularly those receiving welfare, that you talk about the infrastructure that surrounds these people, the caseworkers who try and get people work that actually really probably prevent them from getting a job that they would want um, and it would take a a great deal longer than if they'd just gone and done it themselves with this kind of plan in place. I mean, that is one of those arguments that is probably the strongest, the affordability argument, because I'm not sure what it's like in... um, 
the Netherlands, but in Australia, I'm, there's a huge, massive infrastructure that is extremely inefficient. It is exactly the same in Holland and it's exactly the same in the UK. It's, all, yeah. it's, it's the same all over the world. We've seen a huge rise of workfare and, and, you know, incredibly large bureaucratic industry of all kind of care workers and bureaucrats who are all supposed to help the poor because we all assume that there's something wrong with the poor, that, you know, we need to teach them something or anything. It's simply not the case, you know. If we look at the most recent scientific evidence, you know, in, in the best peer-reviewed journals, then the overwhelming conclusion is that poverty is not a lack of character. It is just a lack of cash. And how do you solve a lack of cash? Well, that's pretty easy, right? Mm. You just give cash. Um, there's, a, there's one experiment that I talk about in the book that happened in India, uh, an experiment with sugarcane farmers. They found out that they got 60% of their annual income all at once, right after the harvest, so this means that these farmers are relatively poor one part of the year and rich the other. Now, what the researchers did was give them an IQ test before and after the harvest. The difference was 14 points of IQ. So it's really the context of poverty that, 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 that numbs you and, and, and makes sure that you can only think about the short term. Now, if we completely eradicate poverty, that means that the poor will get an additional 14 points of IQ, mm. right? That, I mean, the, this effect is, is similar to the effects of alcoholism or, or not having slept for a full night. I mean, it's huge. Yeah. And that is the reason that the poor make so many poor decisions. All of us would make poor decisions if we are in poverty. And that's exactly the reason why we need to eradicate it eradicated and get rid of the whole industry of paternalists. Yeah. And that brings us to that discussion around the scarcity mentality um, and that scarcity is all consuming. You say you can't take a break from poverty. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people really don't understand that until they've been in that position to mm -hmm. understand just how debilitating and like a prison it yeah, could be yeah. mentally. Um, so we've looked at some of those examples or those case studies. It is quite amazing to think that 80% apparently of Americans were for some kind of universal basic income. Mm -hmm. How do we change that population consensus mm -hmm. around an idea of the universal basic income because mm -hmm. at the moment um, I'm not sure what the response you've received has been but you get those typical arguments about oh well you know it's just completely idealistic it's mm -hmm. just so you know beyond the realm of possibility mm -hmm. how would we make it work how would we make it work so that uh, people who you know have a disability mm -hmm. receive enough income and uh, you know create tears everyone kind of gets bogged down in those in practicalities yeah, and the yeah. details and so yeah. you never see it move forward how do you do that get past it well let's first recognize that just four five years ago basic income was a completely forgotten subject and now it's everywhere finland has started an experiment canada has just announced a big experiment a lot of people in silicon valley are interested in my country holland there are 20 cities that want to start an experiment uh, right now so i feel a lot less lonely than just a few years ago and what I also believe is that there are millions of people around the globe, especially after 2016, you know, with Brexit and the rise of Donald Trump, millions of people are yearning for an alternative or completely fed up with the status quo. So there's an incredible amount of political energy out there. And someone just has to pick it up and tell a new story that it actually gives people hope and is also built on a completely different image of human nature, Right. I believe that most people are pretty nice. Most people are creative. Most people want to do something with their lives and don't have to be taught by the market or the government, you know, 
whatever they have to do. Most people of, of a, uh, want to contribute to our society. And that's, that's what I believe that progressives and, and the left need to do. I mean, the left these days, it only knows what it's against, right? It's against austerity, against the establishment, against homophobia, against racism, against Trump. And it gives the only, like the Trumps of the world, it gives them the stage all the time. Talk about what you want. Talk about the future you want. You know, talk about mm. your ideas, your alternatives, and develop yeah. a re- story around that. Use the language of hope. Use the language of progress, of meritocracy, of innovation, et- innovation, etc. Mm. That's what I'm trying to do in my book. Well, and you talk about politics with a capital P, which mm. is very different from the undercaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that that is one of the issues in Australia is that the left have had to become very centrist, whereas the Labor Party have had to become. Well, they or perceive they choose it, to become. They perceive it as yeah. a necessary reason or a necessary method to mm-hmm. remain electable, basically, that social democracy yeah. was part of their platform yeah. and in their manifesto, and now that's pretty much the most unpopular, unfashionable thing to possibly but look, suggest. look at what happened in the UK just a few months ago, yeah. I mean, with the elections. For years and years, social democrats and, and, and people in the Labour Party said exactly the same thing, like, we can't be too radical or, we, you know, we'll be unelectable. Actually, what happened is is that Corbyn did really, really well. I mean, he had the best performance of the Labour Party since 1946, you know, in terms of how many seats he won. Um, but so the, the, the problem all this time was not that Labour was too radical. It was not radical enough, right? It didn't really have a proper story that mm. people could believe in. And I think that's exactly the same here in Australia. If you really want to change a country, you need to come up with with ideas that are on the fringes of, of society. And, and to be honest, I, I, I don't think that ever starts in places like Washington or Westminster or Canberra. Um, doesn't start there. You know, it's, it just starts in, with, with people on the fringes of society, on the fringes of the debate, who come up with these new crazy ideas. And then it gradually moves towards the center. That's exactly what has been happening with basic income in the past five years. Mm. But also, as a historian, I find um, your arguments more compelling because they're showing that across history there's precedent for this to work Mm -hmm. and that these crazy ideas can become a reality and that we really just need to look to history to see what's possible. Exactly. That's something that's quite unique. I think for people who aren't historians, they may not see history as being that relevant and that immediate. But I think that's what this book does offer. It it is probably one of the biggest lessons of history that Mm. things can be different. There's nothing natural about the way we've structured our society and economy right now. It can all change for the better or for the worse. It's not inevitable. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, a great point is the GDP uh, example, (laughs) that it was new and it's been, it's 80 years old. Yeah, yeah. That's a new thing. But also coming back to working less, there was one thing that I really liked was you said recently a friend asked me, what does working less actually solve? And you flipped that question and said, is there anything that working less does not solve? That for me, when I then looked at your rationale, was Mm -hmm. very compelling. Could you share with us some of those arguments that you put forward? Well, the benefits of a shorter paid work week are pretty, pretty long. So I'm not saying we should work less so that we can sit on the couch and watch Netflix all day. I think we should devote more time to things that are really important, you know, caring for our kids, caring for our elderly, volunteers' work, investing in our local communities, etc. Incredibly important work that historically, by the way, has mainly been done by women. Mm -hmm. Um, But 
um, the benefits of, you know, having a shorter paid work week and consuming less crap that we don't need. I mean, let's just first think about the biggest challenge of the future, which is climate change. I mean, we shouldn't only talk about solar cells and technology. I mean, that's a big part of the conversation. Uh, but we should also talk about a, another way of living our lives. So I think that a shorter working week is probably the most powerful instrument we've got in the fight against climate change. Uh, now, just look at the epidemic of stress and burnouts and, and work-related uh, depressions that we've seen uh, on the rise since the 1990s. Again, a shorter working week will, will help a lot here. If we look at inequality, we also know that it's actually the countries with the longest working weeks where inequality is highest. And it makes sense because, um, you know, if you, are, if you have a very high uh, per hour wage, I mean, it just becomes more expensive to, to work less, right? Mm. So there are incentives to work more if inequality is higher. Uh, like pretty much all the big issues are, are connected to mm. this. Well, um, from my perspective, I think your point about gender equality is very compelling and it's something yeah. that uh, when we have these discussions about why aren't there more women in leadership, you know, why are they getting paid less, all these arguments, it's largely, it always for me, comes back to men and women in their couple situations when they have children, if they have children, mm-hmm. uh, having such an unequal division of labour. Exactly. And yeah, that I is perpetuated agree. by policies that governments and businesses put in place that suggest that there's a primary carer and a secondary carer. Yeah. Clearly, both people contributed to the situation to create the child. Um, you know, you can just look at different countries. I yeah. mean, many Scandinavian countries, they've got pretty long paternity leave and people suddenly make very different decisions. Absolutely. So again, there's nothing natural about all of this. No. So I'm really interested to see where we can take this book and the ideas within it. And if in your time here in Australia, you've made any observations, because it's often the, ch- mm-hmm. the case when you're coming from another country and you're in another's, uh, you see some things that others don't see. Is there anything that you have picked up on while you're here? Oh, well, to be honest, you know, I, in the, the past few months, I've been to Japan, I've been to Spain, to the US and, and, and to the UK. And what really strikes me are the similarities, mm. you know, that pretty much the discussions are, are the same everywhere. Um, it's it's people yearning for new ideas, people who are completely fed up with their uh, with their working hours and, and are uh, often worried about their meaningless jobs and that they want to devote more time to stuff that they really care about. It's pretty much the same everywhere. Um, so 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 in that sense, I think this, the the way forward is also the same. Mm. What we need is probably two things. So we need that radical vision, a clear vision. We need to, to be able to stay on message, communi- communicate that to the public all the time. Uh, like this is the much better society that we envision, where there's much more individual freedom, where you can devote much more time to stuff that you love. Um, that's important. But the th- second thing we need is to have a pretty practical plan of what you can do tomorrow. And in that sense, I, I, I'm really excited about all these basic income experiments. I mean, everyone is knows a bit, a little bit about their own local situation uh, or the, the particular city that they live in. What I experienced in Holland is that when I wrote my book first in 2014, it was pretty much ignored on the national level. So no national politicians or national media were interested in it. But the local level, people read it and said, you know, can I... 
can't, why can't we just do this here? Mm. So they started petitioning their municipality or their local politicians, and now 20 cities want to start that experiment. That's how it, that's how it works. Yeah. So people have much, much more power than they realize. Mm. They just need to recognize the idealism in each other, and they need to realize that they are not alone. There are so many more people out there who, <laughs> who, who, who are open to these ide- new ideas. Mm. And, and, oh, and one final thing, yes. stop watching television. Because, I mean, <laughs> the news it just the news is yeah. always about exceptions, you know, things that go wrong, corruption, crises, terrorism. So at the end of the day, if you watch a lot of the news, you know exactly how the world doesn't work. So really, that's probably the first important step. Throw mm. your television out of the window. Yes, couldn't agree more. <laughs> I only recently acquired one and it was a gift, but I only watched the football on it, so that's my Oh, that's all right. That's Football's my right. reason. Yeah. yeah, like it's got it's totally removed from anything to do with politics, mm-hmm. thank God. Just finally, uh Rutger, when you wrote this book, you clearly had an aim in mind. It wasn't just for self-indulgences or anything. You have a clear mm-hmm. passion to mm-hmm. to change things. What's next for you in terms of continuing this discussion mm-hmm. and opening it up more and, and following these uh, studies around universal basic income? What are you hoping to do in the future? Well, let's be honest. I mean, I was incredibly lucky that I got the chance when I was already pretty young, like 25 years old, that I uh, got a job at a journal, uh, Dutch journalism platform that basically, well, they gave me a basic income and said, write about whatever you want. Mm. And then, you know, suddenly a lot of good can come out of that if you're allowed to pursue your own passions. So that's what I'm, I'm going to continue doing. I'm working on my next book and uh, touring around with this book. And I believe that everyone has a different role to play in this movement. You know, I'm a writer. I think I'm good at that. <laughs> and uh, I'll keep continuing doing that. But it's been amazing to see that, for example, a few weeks ago, I, I met a woman, in, um, a woman in, in Vancouver who read one of the um, stories in a book about a, an experiment in London where they ca- gave unconditional cash to uh, 13 homeless men, 3,000 pounds was another amazing success. You know, the men used the money really well and in the end it turned out that the the organization saved a lot of money as well because it's actually more expensive to let people live on the streets than to help them off it. Mm. Even The Economist at that point said, you know, the, the, the magazine The Economist wrote, the best way to spend money on the homeless might be just to give it to them. Um, <laughs> and... This uh, woman from Vancouver read the story and she was so inspired that she decided, you know, I want to I start another study in my, in my city, in Vancouver. And she had just received half a million in government funding to start it. And that is just amazing, isn't it? Mm. I mean, that, that people take these ideas and, and, and do their own thing with it. Uh, everyone has a role to, to play. Everyone has their own resources, contacts, talents, mm. etc. And I'm not really good at organizing stuff, so I'm not going to start a political party or anything. <laughs> that, that'll probably be a disaster. But everyone has a role to play, I believe. Yeah. And there are a lot of people galvanizing political movements as we speak, mm-hmm. such as uh, the DiEM25 movement in Europe. Yeah, that's um, a good example. Yeah, and hopefully we'll get to talk to Yanis Varoufakis about his book um, awesome. soon, which will be great. But yeah, Edel's uh, in the room, right? Oh, it was really, really yeah, good. Yes, yeah, yes, absolutely. That's the one. Um, yeah. And uh, and it's just fascinating to get an insight into EU politics from the, the inside. Mm-hmm. It was always really interesting to hear when he was finance minister for Greece, um, his really fresh and, I guess, outsider perspective because he chose to remain an outsider yeah. in an insider's environment. So He is one of the great heroes of our time. I really believe that. Yeah. It's just incredible. Truly, yeah. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, so there is hope. There is hope with some people like that and hopefully we can continue inspiring them through research and writing and, and all of our talents. So thank you, Rutger, for writing this book and spending time with me today to talk about it. Thanks for having me. And that was my interview with Dutch historian Rutger Bregman and we were discussing the contents of his latest book. It's called Utopia for Realists and How We Can Get There. It's out through Bloomsbury Publishing. You are listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRFM with myself, Amy Mullins. And uh, as mentioned, I have with me Professor Tom Griffiths from the ANU uh, and he joins me in the studio uh, He's down here in Melbourne uh, to deliver the Ernest Scott Lecture for 2017. It also happens to be the History Council of Victoria's annual lecture as well. And I'm welcoming Tom right now. Hi, Tom. Hi, Amy. Hi. Thank you so much for coming in. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. It's just wonderful to have you. Um, your expertise is unparalleled, I would say, and um, you're certainly a historian's historian. Um, so it's great to have you with us. Now, um, you, as I mentioned, will be delivering a lecture tonight and part of our discussion will be around that. Um, you know, the first part of that uh, title of the lecture is The Craft of History. And that in itself is an interesting way of talking about history uh, as a, somewhat a creative process. And you do talk about that in the introduction to your book, The Art of Time Travel, is that it is a very creative process, but it also has a lot of rigour behind it and it's fact-based and evidence-based. And the second part of that title in your lecture is In the Age of Fake News. So let's talk about, first of all, the craft of history. Now, you also have said that professional history started in the 19th century in Western Europe uh, and Australia then, you know, developed its own professional history history uh, since then, since the beginning of the colonial era, but probably in a more concerted way post-Federation, I'm guessing. Yeah. So, um, Tom, talking about or looking at Australia as an example of history, what, uh, I mean, what was the development of history professionally in Australia and how did it develop as a craft? It really took um, sort of professional form, as you've said, in the early 20th century. And it really also developed as a kind of footnote to imperial history. So early Australian history, as it was taught in universities, was very often um, the, the, uh, an example of the British Empire uh, and colon- story of colonisation. And perhaps the last lecture in the series uh, on British history might end up in, with the first fleet coming to Australia. So it literally was a bit of a footnote to the, the British story, the story of the, the British world. Mm. But at the same time as that was going on, um, see, people do history all the time, of course. It doesn't just happen in universities. And right throughout the 19th century, um, people who'd migrated here um, wanted to make sense of this place. They were very interested in its long Aboriginal past. They didn't really understand quite what that meant uh, and how, how deep and rich that was. But they began storytelling. They began writing local history. So history, I think, it grows organically as well as being a kind of professional um, uh, import, if you like. So that's something I've always been interested in. Uh, and I wrote a book 20 years ago called Hunters and Collectors, um, not about the, the band, but about, yeah. <laughs> but about uh, the, the growth of that organic um, history in Australia and historical societies, museums, and just the way history is a kind of instinct. instinct. Yeah. You know, people need to make sense of where they are and where they come from. And so I've always been interested in that. Whereas in this book, The, the Art of Time Travel, I have looked 
more particularly at the 20th century growth of professional academic history and I've done that by looking over the shoulders of 14 historians at work. So it's mm. not a, as you know, it's not an abstract sort of discussion of history. It's very personal, I think, intimate, even looking over the shoulders of people at work, at their desk, or as they walk the countryside or talk to people or um, just get the sense of place that they need to gain in order to write really compelling history. Yes. And these are also historians that have inspired you professionally as well. I'm sure that was one part of the criteria when you were selecting these historians or people who practice history. That's right. So they're all people um, that I've known or had an association with. Uh, many of them are my teachers. I admire them and have learnt so much from them. And so it's a quirky personal selection. It's not a, a, a canon or a best of or tr- seeking to be representative, um, but they are all gifted historians and each of them offers a different window into the past. And mm. the challenge for me as a writer was to think, well, how can I, in a chapter, distill this fascinating dialogue that goes on in the making of good history between uh, present experience and, um, and, and what you discover from that journey into the past. And Indeed. it happens over a whole lifetime which I've tried to convey too. Yeah, and it is interesting because there's many dialogues happening. There's dialogues in the scholarship. So, you know, as you say, one of the greatest compliments could be reading others' work and that then informing your own work, but also a dialogue within, you know, internally. There's often a struggle. And then um, one of the things, the kind of uh, descriptions that you provide that I found really um, useful was that history is kind of a scholarship and that, you know, you have the sources and the materials and you have too many of them and you need to have too many to be able to whittle it away into something that should have existed already. Is You know, when you get to that idea or you find that moment where you're like, yep, I know exactly what I need to say now. It's quite a rewarding experience, um, isn't it? It's kind of like Mm. a bit of a treasure hunt and you found the treasure finally. And it's not necessarily finding one source that's the treasure. Mm. It's really about bringing the richness of all the sources together to kind of sift through it. Yeah. Um, Oh, beautifully put. I agree. You know, it really is what makes writing history so exciting because you don't know where you're going to end up. No. (laughs) It really is a kind of discovery and exploration and it's quite intuitive and it's certainly artistic. And so I'm trying to show through these lives of historians the way in which you can be creative at the same time as being scholarly Mm -hmm. and truth-telling. So it's not that you're making things up, but you need imagination to be able to make those past people come alive, to make them believable. Yeah, it is a really exciting thing, a process. I know that might be hard for some people to relate to, but hopefully they will understand by the end of this conversation why it's so exciting. Um, And you talk about uh, how... It's historians are often challenged about the usefulness of their discipline and we see this very often uh, even nowadays when we're giving out grants for different research it's often suggested that uh, and you know we have these debates in the media about oh well you know these people got a grant for you know such an obscure topic researching the history of x uh, you know it should be going to medical research or something like that how do we share or um, help relate history to people and its importance um, and, you know, I guess its relevance for the 21st century in this era where, as you have, you're indicating in your lecture, 
uh, the facts are quite contested and it, it does become confusing. Aren't historians and, and good history, like rigorous history, isn't it needed now more than ever? Mm, I feel so. And uh, you've just described very well, I think, this um, uh, compulsion to kind of live in the present, to make that relevance means that you must somehow always be addressing things on the surface. Mm. Uh, and what historians have to offer society is a kind of counterproductive insight. It is to say uh, that we might gain wisdom by letting go of the present for a little while, travelling into past other worlds and dredging them for insights and then returning to the present and speaking to that present and offering a much greater array of experience uh, and thought than we can have if we just dwell in the ever-present relevant moment. And the danger of much as a boon that the internet is and Mm. social media and so on, the danger is that it makes it harder and harder for us to let go of the present and therefore open ourselves up to deeper thinking, to linear thinking. I think that's in jeopardy with our connectivity. We need both. We do need deep linear thinking as well. And so I feel that what historians have to offer is in a way we're all paddling in the shallows of Mm -hmm. the internet. Um, We need to be led into the deeper water again uh, where we used to swim Mm -hmm. (laughs) instead of paddle, you know. And so there is a sense in which the past, all of human experience, that's what the past is. It's everything we've ever done everywhere. Yeah. Uh, of course it's relevant, um, uh, that that should be, remain available to us. And the, uh, the art of history, the discipline of history, is the way in which we can do that in a rigorous fashion, mm. in a way that um, is, is civil and uh, civilised and, and public and can lead us towards truths. Yeah, and that's a really important point there about being civilised because there there are debates as well and people can get quite sensitive around issues that bring in a lot of moral and ethical dilemmas such as around slavery um, or genocide and it, it can become a very heated debate and even, um, a, you know, a very current example that still continues to be very contested is the uh, so-called, well, I think it's a, a genocide, the Armenian genocide and the Turkish government believing that it, it wasn't and that's still an ongoing scholarly debate uh, and you know there's obviously holes in the evidence as well so that makes things difficult but I know that in your lecture you'll be talking about some of these areas of contested history and denialism and uh, and there was an example um, or an area that is quite interesting uh, that you were mentioning off air about frontier conflict. So I'm really interested if you could share a bit more about that area of Australian history and how it's changed. Sure. Um, well, just right now, of course, we've had debates about statues and Australia Day and they're being called the history wars, uh, a phrase I don't particularly like, but it's useful in terms of explaining um, these debates. And, and uh The the history wars, uh, an American term, uh, was really mobilised in Australia in the um, around the early two thousands when the um, there was a challenge to the teaching and writing of history about frontier conflict. Um, Particularly, Keith Windshuttle uh, attacked Henry Reynolds, but not just Henry Reynolds and Lyndall Ryan, but in fact the whole historical profession and argued that they were guilty of conspiracy and deceit and willful systematic um, fabrication. Quite a serious um, um, accusation against the whole profession. And what interests me, and the debate was about, you know, was, was it a violent frontier or was it not? How many Aboriginal people were killed during those uh, 
encounters. Henry Reynolds had argued uh, perhaps 20,000 uh, and Windshuttle was saying it was very much less than that and highly exaggerated and exaggerated for political purpose. What interests me is the way in which historians as a profession responded to that. Um, they welcomed the debate. Uh, they taught Windshuttle's work in university courses uh, as well as responses to it. It became a case study for thinking about historical methodology. It generated a whole new um, surge of historical research into the frontier. Well, what was the frontier like in the Gulf Country, in North, in North Queensland, in Western Australia, uh, on uh, New South Wales? You know, what was it like? And, and so in the last 10 or 15 years since this debate, there's been fantastic work by historians all over the country, including Aboriginal historians, uh, into the reality of the frontier. And what has emerged is a, a more profound uh, understanding of, the, uh, sadly, the trauma and the violence of that frontier. And it's resulted in, I think, those estimates of, again, sadly and grimly, those estimates of deaths on the frontier being revised upwards rather than downwards. Mm. But the example's telling because how did res historians respond to accusations as a profession? Um, they responded, as I think um, scholarly people should do, thoughtfully, over time, with good Research. Mm -hmm. They travelled into that past. It takes time to give a thoughtful response. It's hard to respond to these things immediately and indeed in some ways we, we shouldn't feel we always have to respond immediately. It's a good thing to say, do you know, I'm gonna, we're going to research that, mm -hmm. consider it carefully and going to come back with a, 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 a thought-through response based on evidence. Yes, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> it's, well, I, I think it's quite obvious, but perhaps sometimes it's not in this day and age of, you know, many, like lots of information, quite a lot of conflict and certainly conflict is increased through social media as well in terms of debating issues. Um, I know that it's increased in around Australian politics on Twitter. When I first started, it was very reflective. Um, it's gotten a bit more combative um, in nowadays. But I want to talk a bit more about uh, the historical quest um, and the what you talk about in terms of what historians do when they are researching, when they are thinking thoughtfully and reflectively and critically about something. I mean, what is it um, that they do that's unique in terms of providing context and providing evidence and how do they do that? Well, one historian I admire, American historian Richard White, says um, that any inquiry into the past begins in strangeness, uh, that we have to um, in, in cultivate wonder about this strange other world, That so much so that we wonder how our own great-grandparents could have come from such a place and that what historians do is they move constantly between familiarity and strangeness. Our aim is to go into that past world um, and respect it for its in integrity and its own uh, right, uh, see the way in which uh, it is so different from us, um, but also to find continuities at the same time because mm. we have to return to our present. We have to talk to our fellow humans about, um, uh, about these earlier experiences. So you're constantly moving between, I think, um, familiarity and strangeness between distance and intimacy and it's that it's it, that's the kind of time travel that's going on yeah. i think the way historians 
do it is by immersing themselves in context. Mm. Um, and that takes a lot of time and a lot of work and a lot of energy. You know, um, uh, archives, even in the digital era, a paper archive remains a beautiful and enchanting place for historians, a place where you go, you uh, you go through purification rituals in order to enter this sacred place. You sometimes open documents that haven't seen the light of day since they were first preserved. You feel a kind of familiarity, intimacy with mm. these people, but also you know you're entering a very strange and different world that you have to interpret for your own society. So it really, I think that's a generate, that is a discipline. It is um, in every sense. It's a discipline just to kind of... Um, as I say, let go your present and mm. give yourself to that pastime f- with sufficient effort to be able to come to some new insights. So that's the paradox that you might be an engaged citizen with relevant and highly practical insights that come from this process of letting go. Yeah, and it's also a process of empathising and trying to understand where people were coming from at the time. And that's one of the things that I found has been more difficult for some recently, and I've seen this change over time, um, is that there's often sometimes a judgement upon the past. Well, we don't do that now. You know, they acted horribly then and had all of these biases and prejudices. And often some people can find it hard to remove themselves emotionally or at least to be able to then to empathise and understand and seek to, um, I mean, that's how you evaluate sources is to, to have an empathy with the people that you're studying and looking into. How important do you think that kind of emotional quotient or empathy is for a historian? It's vital, but we also have to discipline it because uh, they those past peoples are not we can't assume they are like us. And if we just use empathy, we will turn them into ourselves. Mm. Well, they're often not like us because it is a foreign country. I think that's the other issue is that people can make that assumption too, that you can apply the same standards now to people back then. That's right. But, you know, compassion is another uh, emotion that I think drives history. And, of course, just the questions that we take from our present time always um, uh, very creative and um, and often political, and I don't have a problem with that. I think all history is political, and the the point is, a good scholar is tries to be transparent about that, reflective about it, um, share that with the reader. Um, in fact, good historians are always giving the reader and other scholars the grounds with which to disagree with them. That's what footnotes and references yeah, are about. I was going to say, <laughs> that is the reason why I only buy history books with footnotes. Um, and it also brings me to that interesting tension between popular history, which really is very rarely footnoted and lightly endnoted, versus scholarly history. And you do talk about the importance of having clarity and avoiding jargon in scholarly history. How much do you think um, that is being achieved in Australian history, for example? In Australian history, I think we're pretty good. Um, Of course, I would like to see even more of that clarity um, because uh, universities, uh, uh, the culture of universities can generate their own jargon. But within universities, historians, I think, are good plain speakers and we do recognise that we have a responsibility to communicate with the general public. We want our books read by our colleagues, but we also want them on bedside tables around the nation because that's the way you change thinking. Uh, And the... The inspiring thing is that um, in writing books, you discover there is a hungry pub- public out mm. there who really want 
to understand where their country comes from, who are in search of meaning and understanding, and they're looking for serious non-fiction to help them do that. So um, at writers' festivals and so on, it's wonderful meeting those readers from all walks of life who make it very clear they need you as a historian to be doing this work and they're ready for your next book. They want to read it. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a reminder just how, what a hungry reading public of serious history we've got in this country. That's very heartening to hear. And it also reminds me of uh, an anecdote you provide at the beginning of your book uh, about some French people that you were trekking with or walking with and their fascination and excitement to hear that you were a historian. Um, Could you just briefly share that little tale? Because I felt like that was a lovely illustration of, of how important history is in that cultural context. Well, thank you. Yes, it's, uh, I'm a keen walker, bushwalker in Australia. And when I'm in Europe, I love doing the long distance walking paths and uh, over maybe several weeks. And I was doing a pilgrimage trail in France and everyone else was French. And I got invited to a few uh, dinner tables in the evening. And one night we got to that conversation where you have to say where you, what your job is, what you, how you earn your living. And, um, uh, my companions were a psychological counsellor, a medical nurse and an air conditioning salesman. And then when I said, I'm a historian, there was this chorus of approval, <laughs> which really kind of surprised me. I didn't yeah. expect it. And their next question, didn't miss a beat, was, who are your favourite French historians? I love that question. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's such a confident question about their culture and of the role of historians in their culture. And they expected me as an Australian historian to know the names and they expected that they would know any names I offered them. It's pretty interesting. So that is, yes. um, I, they awaited my answer with quite some interest and, and eagerness. And so I did name a, a couple of French historians. Fernand Brodel mm-hmm. was one of them and they knew his book on the Mediterranean, wonderful history. I mentioned Emmanuel Leroy-Ladurie, uh, who they knew. He'd written this fantastic book about medieval society called Montaillou. Uh, which I do recommend if people don't know it. It's a, it's a terrific read. Um, and and we had this great conversation. And then they said, um, and what about your books? Are they are they translated into into French yet? Um, and I said, well, <laughs> no, knowing they never would be. Yeah. And they said, oh, are we sure sure they will be? But it was this <laughs> this lovely serious conversation with people who weren't historians but serious readers and and thinkers and who. Um, who really valued the role of historians in their culture. So that made me think, as I set out on the path the next day, I thought, I think I'd like to write about that in my own culture and Mm. who might be the historians that I would use to tell that story. Can I show how historians really are engaged citizens? We're not kind of uh, dry as dust, locked away um, from society. We're actually very much engaged with it and often talking to issues that the public is... um, seriously interested in. Indeed. And uh, as a historian, you very revealingly did your research before our interview and looked into my favourite historians and uh, tweeted about it. And one of those is Tony Judd. And he wrote this great book, Ill Fares the Land, which uh, my first ever Triple R experience was reviewing that book on air because I I selected it for that reason. It was just so inspiring to me. Oh, wonderful. What is it it that you loved about it? I love it too. Oh, it actually, it makes me want to cry when I start reading it because Mm. it's so beautifully, clearly written in a, it's passionate but reserved and 
it really gets to me because it's about government's involvement in humans' life and just how much it, it importantly touches our lives and social democracy and the critical, you know, things that it offers people who are at the most disadvantaged. Yes. And obviously Tony suffering from Lou Gehrig's disease at the time was in America but obviously came from the UK and was going through this health system that was very unhelpful and, and min- minimal really and very expensive. Um, so, you know, he had a very felt need to write about something like that anyway and then, you know, explored his illness in other books like The Memory Chalet. But I just I just found him to be one of the most rigorous, open, you know, just he had all of the right things for me as a historian and, and was very transparent but just so articulate and um, and talking about the most important issues that a lot of people didn't want to talk about, which was, well, we expect all of these things from our governments, but are we willing to pay for them? Yes. It's a really important question that most people aren't really facing head on. Yes, indeed. Um, and Tony Judd's um, perspective, historical perspective, enables him to look at the last 30 years, for example, is really quite weird. Yeah. <laughs> and this really relates to some of the things you were talking about with your earlier guest about, re- you know, history is a revolutionary exactly. art, isn't it? It is a, 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 it is a practice which uh, essentially can help us, lead us to sensible and practical change and reform because it you know, if things were once different, then so they might be again and they might be even better. Mm. I think that's one of the things that inspires me about history is uncovering rationales for things and how we can then, you know, replicate them or avoid them. Uh, you know, and, you know, a great example is, you know, World War Two. How do we avoid some of those social things happening again? And what really w- was behind it and the causes and the, the dynamics, social dynamics. So that's why I'm passionate about it. I'm really excited also that you're an environmental historian because I I think that's also a really important area um, of work. Just finally, in terms of you personally and professionally um, and your passion for history, what are some of the things, um, you know, whether they're topics or people or aspects of history that drive you and continue to make you want to write and research? Well, I am very interested in environmental history and it has become a field that I think is really exciting and stimulating now and also vitally relevant. Um, For example, uh, as we deal with the climate crisis, um, historians, I think, have a vital role to play. This isn't just about science. It's about human history. And I found myself reading a lot more medieval and early modern history, uh, particularly in Europe, because good historians are finding uh, really telling examples of how fragile are the relationships between climate and society, that that small average changes in temperature can lead to quite major political and social problems and disease and so forth. And so in terms of helping our society understand why two degrees Celsius average temperature changes in the future, why that could be cataclysmic, because mm. it doesn't sound much, but we know from the last thousand years of human history that even small variations of less than one degree have been very powerful and, and disturbing change agents in our in the story of civilization. So I think history can help us understand the history of the science. It can help, it, help us understand our current predicament and it can help us under, plan better for the future because it gives us this, these stories of the past that give us insights into how we have responded to crisis in, in early eras. Mm, absolutely. Thank you so much, Tom, for coming in. It's been an absolute delight to have you. Thank you, Amy. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> 
That was Professor Tom Griffiths, who is delivering a lecture tonight at the University of Melbourne in the Melbourne School of Design's Basement Lecture Theatre. Uh, you can head along, look it up on Google. Um, it would be great if you register so they have an idea of the numbers, but I know it's free, so you can head along tonight. And uh, it's called The Craft of History in the Age of Fake News. And Tom's book, which won the Ernest Scott Prize for History, is called The Art of Time Travel, Historians and Their Craft. You've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3RRFM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and noon. Thanks for joining me.